Hello fellow teachers and welcome to Teaching with Power. I'm Ben Wilcox and I'm excited to spend some time in the scriptures with you today. We'll be covering Doctrine and Covenants sections 10 and 11 in this lesson. And my goal with these lessons is not only to give you insight into the scriptures, but also give you ideas and materials that'll help you to teach those insights to other people in relevant and meaningful ways. Now this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. And if you find this video helpful, please consider subscribing, uh, sharing it with others, and hitting the thumbs up. Now it's time to grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. Let's go ahead and dig deep. For an icebreaker, I like to begin by asking my students how long they think it takes to build a skyscraper. With all the planning, designing, and the actual construction, the answer to that question is going to be years, years in the making. But then another question, how long do you think it takes to destroy a skyscraper, to knock one down? And the answer to that is mere seconds. And then I'd like to show them a quick video clip of some building demolitions to prove the point. And you can click on the link above to see an example of that kind of a video. Although I probably wouldn't show the entire thing. Maybe just a few minutes to give them the idea. But then I ask, according to the following verses in section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, what is Satan's number one objective? his goal, his intention. Do you see a common theme or word that's repeated in each of these verses? And that key word is destroy. That is a major theme of this section. Satan loves to destroy things. It's probably most clearly stated in verse 27. And thus he goeth up and down to and fro in the earth, seeking to destroy the souls of men. Kind of sounds like he just doesn't have anything better to do than wander around destroying souls. In fact, that is one of his titles in the scriptures. He's sometimes referred to as the destroyer. Also, the word devil in the scriptures has its roots in the idea of destroying or spoiling things. And you know, destroyer is an apt title for Satan, isn't it? You could brainstorm this question with your class. What things does Satan seek to destroy? A lot of possible answers to that question. He seeks to destroy testimonies, families, our health, happiness. From the very beginning, he tried to destroy our agency, marriages, love, trust, our sense of self-worth, peace, and he even sometimes succeeds in destroying entire nations. Satan is a destroyer. God and Jesus, on the other hand, are builders. The work and glory of God is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And Satan does everything in his power to destroy that work. And God also encourages us to build as well. Helaman 5.12 tells us that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer that we must build our foundation. 
Yet, at the same time, what's the adversary going to send? Mighty winds, shafts in the whirlwind, hail, and mighty storms hoping to destroy what we've built. And Jesus told the parable of the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Floods came to both houses. Floods of temptation and sin and challenge. The house on the sand washed away while the house built on the rock stood still. And then one of the principles of the doctrine of Christ is to endure to the end. And what we build in this life needs to endure. Hopefully, our spiritual structure can endure the forces and the pressures that will most certainly be placed upon it. Now, this destructive force that's wielded by Satan is neither random or amateurish. This section speaks of Satan having a cunning plan and an evil design. We know that God has a plan of salvation for you. But Satan's got a plan for you too. But it's a cunning plan, a tricky and destructive one. And Satan's no dummy. He's organized. He's calculating. He's smart. You've got to respect that fact. Uh, he's been doing this, tempting mortals and seeking to destroy them, for millennia. He's got a lot of experience in the field, from Adam and Eve to you and I. Section 10 exposes that plan at least part of it. And it reminds me of one of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Screwtape Letters. And if you've never read it, I highly recommend it. And the premise of the book sounds absolutely diabolical. It's written from the perspective of a senior devil trying to train an apprentice devil how to tempt people. But boy, C.S. Lewis really nails it. There were so many times I've read that book where I find myself saying, yep, I've seen him try that one on me, and that's definitely how he works. And he just lays Satan's evil design and cunning plan out perfectly. Now, somebody might grumble, why on earth would I want to read a book about tempting people? What a devilish thing to do. Well, that's a good question. Why would we want to read a book about Satan's tactics and his strategies? so that we know what to expect, so that we'll be prepared for his attempts. And section 10 runs in that same vein, in that screw tape letters type vein. The Lord is revealing how Satan plans and works to destroy. And there's a great advantage to understanding Satan's cunning plan and his evil designs. If you were playing football or basketball or hockey or whatever, and you knew exactly what the other team's playbook was and their game strategy, you would have a great advantage and a higher likelihood of defeating them. Now, the background of this section is the loss of the 116-page manuscript of the Book of Mormon. And we discussed that story back in Section 3. And we did cover a portion of Section 10 in that lesson, the part that describes what happened to the manuscript and how God had prepared a solution to Joseph and Martin's mistake. So, you may want to go back and review that. But this week, we're going to go a little deeper into a different aspect of section 10. But keep in mind, as we study this, that the specific cunning plan of the adversary that's being referred to in this section 
was his plan to frustrate the restoration by hindering the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. But in a broader context, as we seek to liken the scriptures to ourselves, this is a perfect illustration of how Satan seeks to hamper God's work in our lives, how he seeks to hinder our exaltation or destroy us so that in our case, it will be a lost soul, not a lost manuscript. Well, how does Satan destroy? What are the details of his demolition design? This section is full of descriptive verbs that show us how Satan works. He tried these things on Joseph in relation to the manuscript, and he's going to try these things on us. So let's see if we can find all the vile verbs. Vile verbs. I'll give you the verse and see if you can find the descriptive action word that describes what Satan seeks to do. Now, if I were teaching adults, I'd just call out the verses and have them identify the answers. But if you're teaching young people, here's a brief activity idea that I've found to be effective and fun. I divide my class into teams and give each one a small whiteboard. But you could just use paper if you don't have whiteboards. And then on my board, I draw a racetrack that looks something like this. And I've also prepared little cutouts of different kinds of animals with magnets on the back. And uh, I allow the teams to choose their game piece. And then I shout out the scripture reference that has the vile verb. And the teams work together to locate the answer. And the first team that raises the correct answer gets to move their game piece a space forward. And whichever team is in the lead by the end of the activity wins. Now, if you want to add another element of fun to this activity, you can try this. Whichever team answers first, they get to move their game piece two spaces forward. But then they also have to decide on another team to move up one space with them. And then they also get to choose another team to move one space back. Now what this does is it tends to equalize things and, and keeps everybody in the game, especially if there's one team that tends to dominate. But with that said, let's go ahead and look for the verbs. In verse 7, the vile verb, take away. Satan seeks to take away the things wherewith we have been entrusted. For Joseph, it was the manuscript. For us, Satan seeks to take away our integrity, our health, our faith, our innocence, our chastity, our virtue, the strength of our relationships, our spiritual gifts. God is all about giving and increasing and building. Satan, he just wants to take it all away. Verses 10 and 15. Put it into their hearts. Satan does have a measure of power, the power of suggestion. He can't force people to do things any more than, than God does. He respects agency. But he can invite and entice and persuade to do evil. He speaks directly to the natural man, who often lends him a sympathetic ear. Now, I would have expected him to write that Satan puts it into their minds, 
But notice he says hearts. Just like the Holy Ghost communicates through our hearts and minds, like we talked about last week. Satan seeks to do the same with a counterfeit strategy. He'll suggest feelings to our hearts to draw us in his direction. All the wrong kinds of feelings, selfishness, pride, lust, anger, hate, laziness. He'll put these feelings into the unguarded and susceptible heart. And we have the power to guard against these things and to reject them. We don't have to let them in. But Satan will certainly be bringing them to the door and knocking. Another one in verse 10. Now this seems to relate directly to the loss of the manuscript. But the vile verb or phrase here is alter the words. And I think we can liken this to ourselves as well. The plan of the wicked men in Joseph's day was to alter the words of the manuscript so that if Joseph tried to translate them again, they could debunk him by saying that they didn't match up. They altered words of scripture for their own selfish schemes. Is this the only time that Satan has tried something like this? No. Now, if he can change scripture, then he can more easily lead disciples astray. This was one of the biggest issues of the early Christian church. False prophets who would alter the writings of early church leaders for their own selfish desires. Or create their own scriptures and claim them as valid without any authority. Or they would take the scriptures and give them their own private interpretation. Peter was worried about this. He said, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Or you could point to those famous verses that the anti-Book of Mormon crowd loves to quote from Revelation 22, 18 through 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now, this is not an indictment or a restriction on any future revelation or scripture, but a warning to any person that would seek to change the words of the book of Revelation itself. The Bible didn't exist in its present form when John wrote those words. John was worried that people would come and alter his words. So he says, don't add to or take away from my writings in this book. Well, Satan will seek to do the same with us. He tempts us to alter the words of Scripture to throw us off course, to take things out of context, to search through them looking for any possible justification to support our own premises and then ignore all the other scriptures or to overemphasize one side of a divine balance like uh, justice and mercy you can push that balance too far in either direction and end up in dangerous territory there is a companion phrase to this one near the end of the section what's the companion vile verb from verse 63. 
as far as the scriptures are concerned. The vile verb is rest, with a W. Satan tempts people to rest the scriptures, to alter their meaning in an attempt to push their own agendas or excuse their actions. Individuals using those verses from Revelation to dismiss the Book of Mormon is a perfect example of resting the scriptures. Uh, using Doctrine and Covenants 132 to justify living a polygamous lifestyle in our day would be an example of resting the scriptures. Pointing to the description of Deborah in the Old Testament as a prophetess to support an ordain women now policy would be an example of resting the scriptures. And how can we protect ourselves from this? I think the solution is pretty simple. Listen to the living prophets. Trust them. That's one of the reasons we have them, to give us a correct understanding of what the Lord calls the true points of my doctrine. You can see that in verse 62. If we hear someone that is pushing an interpretation of Scripture that does not match up with those of the living prophets, then we can safely dismiss them. All right, moving on. Verses 13 and 28. Lying is the vile verb. Another title for Satan is the father of all lies. God is all about honesty and truth, while Satan is all about lying and falsehood. Lying may be one of the greatest destructive forces that exists. Lies destroy trust. They destroy relationships and they destroy lives. I like something that I once heard uh, John By the Way say. He said that God works line upon line and precept on precept, while Satan works lie upon lie and decept on decept. So don't fall for the lies. Next, in verse 13 and 24, caught caught you. Or in verse 24, they lie in wait to catch. Satan is trying to catch us. And when you catch something, you stop its progress and you control it. You lie in wait to, to catch an animal or you lay a snare. You place an enticement or bait to draw the animal towards the trap. This is what Satan wants to do to us. He baits our souls. The bait of an easy grade is placed in front of us so he can catch us with cheating. He sets the bait of lustful indulgence so he can catch us with pornography. The bait of counterfeit euphoria so he can catch us with drug or alcohol addiction. The bait of self-aggrandizement so that he can catch us with pride. The bait of easy money, so he catches us with gambling or dishonesty. If we have any fishermen out there, have you ever heard of or used power bait? I think Satan has some power bait that he's found very effective over the centuries in snaring many a human soul. Can you find it in verse 19? What is the power bait? The glory of the world. How many people has Satan caught with the lure of power, money, and glory? 
the lure of popularity and wealth and power has led many a soul into selfishness, pride, a total disregard for God, family, and others. Satan even tried that tactic on Jesus when he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and promises to give them to Christ if he will but fall down and worship him. It didn't work on Jesus, and hopefully it doesn't work on us either. Because according to verse 24, what does Satan intend to do with those he catches? He lies in wait to catch so that he may destroy them. It's right back to our overall objective there. Verses 15 and 29. The vile verb, tempt the Lord. Satan always encourages us to tempt the Lord. Now that's interesting. What on, what on earth does that mean? Jesus said this to Satan when he tempted him to jump from the pinnacle of the temple. He said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And you know, that, that really does seem like a strange temptation. I don't know about you, but I don't find myself tempted too often to go jump off a building. But the real temptation wasn't the jumping. It was about putting demands or conditions on God. I'm going to jump God, so if you really love me, you'll catch me. Sometimes we may be tempted to tempt the Lord, to say things like, Lord, I'll only believe in you or follow you or keep your commandments if you do this thing for me first. Or I'll only believe if this happens. Or if you don't give me this blessing or answer this prayer, then I'm going to abandon your path. We're jumping from the pinnacle when we do this. We're tempting the Lord. We don't place conditions or demands on God. He provides us with the conditions, not the other way around. We should always seek to have a, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done attitude. In verse 21, love darkness rather than light. Satan seeks to twist people's love into a love for darkness. Now that sounds absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it? Who would actually love darkness? Well, perhaps those that have something to hide. Thieves and criminals usually do their work in the dark. And they find protection in the darkness. Perhaps it's referring to those that are fascinated by dark things, by sin, by crime, by violence. I've never really understood why so many people seem to love dark entertainment, violent movies and TV shows that depict horrific things and murder and blood and, and satanic themes. I know that many of the most popular shows of the day are full of these dark subject matters, and they glorify them. And perhaps the darkness is the darkness of ignorance. There are those that wish to remain outside the light of truth and the responsibility that goes with it, and, and bask in the darkness of incomprehension. And they say, God can't judge me for what I don't know. So they willingly keep themselves in darkness. When we do that, we are squarely in Satan's territory. 
the next one, 22, 24, and 32. And, and just a quick note here, I think you probably noticed that some of these verses share vile verbs. So when I give you multiple verses, you need to look for which ones are common in each of those verses. So the phrase that's common in those, stirreth, he stirreth them up, stirreth up their hearts to anger. Satan is a pot stirrer. He loves contention and stirring up emotions that are better left settled. Anger, hatred, pride, selfishness, jealousy. God fills us with peace, contentment, and tranquility. While Satan seeks to stir up and provoke and agitate. Verses 25, 26, and 29. Flattereth. Flattereth is the vile verb. And flattery is the use of excessive and insincere praise. It's given for the intent of furthering your own interests, not the person that you're flattering. Flattery is the opposite of a sincere compliment. And it's usually a word that's associated with some of the greatest villains of the Book of Mormon. You've got Sherem, King Noah, Amalekiah, and Korahor. All of them are described as using flattery to gain power and popularity among the people. Flatterers appeal to the natural man. That's their target. They excuse and encourage the basest of desires. It's that voice that tells you that you're better than other people. That's flattering. It's the voice that tells you that it's okay and that it's natural to, to give in to indulgence and to sin, to give in to lust and to pride and to hate. He flatters you into those sinful behaviors. Next, verse 26. And I'm going to say that there's two in here, and I'm going to pair them together. He leadeth them along and draggeth their souls to hell. Now, to me, that's an interesting paradox. Why would you put those two verbs together? When you lead somebody along, that suggests a willingness of the person that's being led. They're not being forced. But being dragged does. And that is one of Satan's great strategies. He lures you in with the flattery and the lies and the empty promises. He tells you that obedience is bondage, but sin is freedom. And it's a seductive message. But once he's got you into his territory, once he's led you, then he grabs hold. Then he starts to drag. How many people have been led into substance abuse, or pornography addiction, gambling, or pride or anger? But once they realize that they're getting more than they bargained for, once they begin to see through the lies and the consequences are starting to show up, they turn around to get away. Satan calls out, not so fast. He catches them around the legs with addiction and punishment and consequence, and he won't let go. He just latches on and pulls and drags. Anyone who has tried to overcome an addiction knows exactly what I'm talking about. Verse 33, the vile verb, overpower 
overpower your testimony. If you compare testimony to something that you build, like a structure, like your house upon a rock, what does Satan wish to do to that structure? To overpower it, like we began the lesson with, to demolish it, to watch it crumble into a cloud of dust or wash away in a flood of his lies. This reminds me of one of the more recent tactics that the anti-church crowd is using these days. It's what I call a belief blitz. It's where they gather up every possible anti-church argument, criticism, controversy, theory, or spurious story, roll it all up into one big ball, amplify it with ridicule and contempt, and throw it at you. And for a member of the church with a developing or a vulnerable testimony, quite often young people, this can be overwhelming and deeply discouraging. Some just aren't able to handle it. Their testimonies are overpowered by those that use their experience, their eloquence, their popularity, their cleverness to destroy. Well, those are quite the vile verbs, aren't they? Do you have a better understanding of how Satan works? I can assure you that just by knowing this and by studying this section, by being made aware of it, you're already stronger and more able to resist these strategies because you're going to be better able to recognize them when he tries them on you. Now, one more question regarding the cunning plan of the evil one. This isn't a vile verb, but it's the target of the vile verbs. There's a specific part of the body that Satan seems to go after most. In fact, I did some research, and I was fascinated to discover that this particular word appears more often in section 10 than any other section in the entire Doctrine and Covenants. It shows up 11 times. I'll give you a set of verses, and you tell me what it is. What is it that Satan's after? What's his target? The heart. Satan wants your heart. He plans a heart attack. Just look at all the things that he attempts to do to people's hearts. He puts things in them. He hardens them. He stirs them up to anger. He corrupts them and fills them with wickedness and abominations. When the scriptures speak of our hearts, they're usually referring to our character, our feelings, our motivations. It's the source of all our decisions and our direction in life. If Satan can get your heart, he can usually begin to control your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. No wonder the scriptures often speak of us having broken hearts or willing hearts or soft hearts. God needs our hearts to be submissive, humble, and willing to follow the guidance of a loving Father in heaven. Ironically, those broken and soft hearts are the kinds that are protected and impervious to Satan's tactics. So, the truth that hopefully we've established here We've got to understand, we've got to recognize that Satan has a cunning plan to destroy you. 
we need to expect that. But the better you know his strategies, the better you will be able to withstand them and resist them. And before we wrap this section up, I know you've heard me say this before, and I can promise you that you'll hear me say it again. The scriptures never present a problem without a solution being somewhere nearby. Section 10 is no exception. What can we do in the face of Satan's cunning plans and evil designs? Is there anything that can help us, that can give us strength? Yes. And it comes right at the very beginning, right before he starts talking about Satan's evil design and cunning plan. It's in verse 5. What is it? It's prayer. Consistent prayer. Pray always. That doesn't mean to pray 24-7, but it means to have a consistent habit of sincere communication with Heavenly Father. And what will prayer do? It will help us to conquer or escape. And I think it's interesting that those two words are used. They're both war images. Satan is on the attack, right? Remember the heart attack. And prayer can help us to conquer him. Satan may be a destroyer, but you can be a conqueror. Think of some of the greatest conquerors in history. Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun, Alexander the Great, Napoleon. They conquered armies, cities, and nations. So what? All of their exploits mean nothing now. But if you can conquer Satan and all of his servants, that is a real victory. That's really doing something. Prayer is one of your greatest weapons. It leads you to victory, to conquering. We conquer when we win souls for Christ. We conquer when we stand up for truth and righteousness. We conquer when we let our light so shine before men that they see our good works. Prayer can give us the strength that we need to do that. On the other hand, prayer can also help us to escape. If we have any World War II enthusiasts out there, D-Day was a conquering battle, but Dunkirk was an escape. But both were victories, in a sense. Sometimes we conquer with prayer, but other times we escape. We escape when we resist temptation. We escape when we realize our errors before it's too late. We escape when we turn to Christ and the power of his atonement for forgiveness. We escape when we're humble enough to ask for help out of difficult circumstances. If we are the types of disciples that pray always, and we'll conquer and escape many times in our lives. I know I've experienced that. There are many times when I've needed extra strength to resist temptation or to stand up for what I knew was right. Often, a prayer in my heart gave me what I needed to act. Let's liken the scriptures for you here. How has prayer helped you to conquer or escape the cunning plans of the adversary? Well, I hope this lesson has helped to prepare you for the evil designs of the wicked one, that it's been a bit of a 
mini screw tape letters for you. I believe that this is one of the major purposes of the scriptures. They're here to reveal his tricks and tactics so that we won't fall for them when he tries them on us. We can say things like, Oh no, Satan, I saw what you did to Korahor and Laman and Lemuel and David and Martin Harris. It's not going to work on me. If we can couple our scripture study with prayer, then we can really make ourselves unassailable to the adversary. We become conquerors. So pray. Pray always. Pray consistently. And conquer you will. Moving on to Doctrine and Covenants section 11. Here's my icebreaker. What would happen if a soldier decided that he would wait to learn how to shoot a gun only once he was on the battlefield? He'd probably die. What would happen if a pilot decided that he'd figure out how to land the plane only after he'd already taken off? He'd crash. What would happen if somebody wanted to play a game of basketball or football or baseball and they just said, don't explain the objective or the rules or anything, I'll just learn as I go. They probably would lose and, and struggle quite a bit. And what would happen if a teacher decided to walk into a class without ever opening the textbook themselves? That would be a disaster of an experience for the teacher and the students. The point to all this? Preparation is key to performance. Before you engage in almost any activity, there's a period of preparation and learning that needs to take place. So where do soldiers go to prepare for battle? Boot camp or the academy. Where do pilots go? Flight school. Where do athletes go? Basketball practice, football camp, spring training. And then teachers? the university, or the library, or lesson preparation time. But what about missionaries? Where do they go? Do they just hop on a plane one day, arrive in the mission field, and start teaching? No, no, they need training too. Where do they go? The MTC, the Missionary Training Center. And if I were teaching the youth, I might talk a little bit about my MTC experience and, and share what it was like. But then I would make the point that when it comes to God's work, it's the same. Before you go out to represent the Lord, you need to be prepared. Now, hopefully, we begin preparing ourselves to share the gospel way before you're ever dropped off at the MTC. Missionaries who wait until that moment to start preparing are probably in for a rude awakening. The time to prepare is always now. Don't wait until you walk through those doors to begin your preparation. Even Jesus prepared himself for 30 years before he ever started his ministry. Section 11 is like an MTC for prospective missionaries in God's kingdom. And this lesson is particularly relevant to young men and young women or senior couples who have a desire to serve a full-time mission. But by the same token, it applies to anyone who wishes to preach or teach for God. Member missionaries, as well as full-time missionaries. Now, section 11 came as a result of Joseph's older brother Hiram 
asking him what God's will for him was as far as the restoration was concerned. He wanted to help in the work. He had a desire to do something. And hopefully that's how we all feel when it comes to preaching the gospel, that we want to be a part of it. Back in section four, you might remember the phrase, if ye have desires, ye are called to the work. Well, that word desire shows up all over section 11. Hiram had a desire to preach. Therefore, he would be called. And by the way, this section explicitly states that it's directed to more than just Hiram. Verse 27 says that it's directed to all who have good desires to preach. But God also knew that Hiram needed some preparation first, as do we. He wasn't ready yet. In verse 15, he says, Behold, I command you that you need not suppose that you are called to preach until you are called. And in verse 16, wait a little longer. In 18, hold your peace. 19, be patient. In 21, seek not to declare my word at this point. Verse 22, hold your peace. And 26, treasure up in your heart until the time which is in my wisdom that you shall go forth. So Hiram, it's not time yet. Wait until you're called. Maybe he's kind of like the greeny missionary who, who comes out full of zeal and enthusiasm, but doesn't quite have the skills and the knowledge yet and the experience. But that doesn't mean that the Lord wants Hiram to just sit around waiting at the mailbox for a call. He's got plenty for him to do. And that's the spirit of this section. What to do to prepare yourself to preach his gospel. And one way to approach this section is to use this matching activity. Match the verses with the phrase that best describes the mission prep council being offered. And then for each, be prepared to explain why that would be important for a prospective missionary to do or understand. Now, all of the councils that I've got listed there are good councils for preparing missionaries, but not all of them come from this section. So you've got to select the best match. So verse 9, say nothing but repentance unto this generation. And I'm just going to stop it right there. The answer is J. Understand the principle of repentance. Now, why would that be important? because that's what you're going to be teaching. God says, say nothing but repentance. Now, I don't think that means that you ignore the principles of restoration, the plan of salvation, word of wisdom, tithing, etc. But I think that it means that the major thrust of all missionary work is helping people to repent. And the main definition of repentance isn't just the, the steps of repentance, the recognizing the sin, feeling sorrow, making restitution. Repentance is change. Repentance is the turning of the heart to God. That's what you're doing as a missionary. You're inviting people to turn their hearts to God. So, as a missionary, do you understand how that works? Do you understand how to help people to do that. Have you been through the process yourself? If you want to be an effective missionary, you've got to understand 
repentance. Next, verses 6, 9, 18, and 20. Can you see the common phrase in there? Keep my commandments. So the answer is B. Learn obedience. Keep his commandments. A missionary has got to learn obedience. Christ taught us that if any man will do God's will, then he shall know of the doctrine. It's the doing that comes first. If we wish to have a strong testimony of something, then we've got to be willing to live it first and not the other way around. So if you wish to teach the principle of tithing with power, you need to have lived that law yourself. If you wish to teach the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon with power, you need to have read it first. If you wish to teach the word of wisdom with power, you need to have lived it. So, as you prepare to be a missionary, keep his commandments. Be worthy. And then you can teach from experience. Verses 12 through 14. And now, verily, verily, I say unto thee, put your trust in that spirit which leadeth to do good. Yea, to do justly, to walk humbly, to judge righteously, and this is my spirit. Verily, verily, I say unto you, I will impart unto you of my spirit, which shall enlighten your mind, which shall fill your soul with joy. And then shall ye know, or by this shall you know, all things whatsoever you desire of me. And stop right there. The answer is H. Learn how to recognize trust, and act on the promptings of the Spirit. Why would that be important? Great missionaries have a strong relationship with the Spirit. Before you can teach with the power of the Spirit, you've got to learn what it feels like, how to get it, how to be worthy of it, to understand it, to trust it, to walk by it. That's what last week's lesson was all about. In that lesson, we learned the do's and the don'ts and the how's of the Spirit internalize those lessons. Remember that Joseph said that personal revelation was something that we learn and grow into. Well, plant that seed early. Begin that study young. Don't wait until you get into the MTC or the mission field before you begin to forge that relationship, before you start to grow into that principle. Make developing that relationship with the Holy Ghost a priority. Verses 16 and 21. Wait a little longer until you shall have my word, my rock, my church, and my gospel, that you may know of a surety my doctrine. Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word. The match is L. Get his word inside you. You can't teach something that you don't know. Well, this cannot be overemphasized. If you wish to declare his word, you've got to have it in you first. Look at all the virtuous verbs that are used here to describe our relationship with the word. Have the word, know the word, obtain the word. Then you could add from verse 24, build upon the word. And verse 26, treasure the word. An effective missionary will have a deep understanding of the principles of the gospel. And they should know of a surety the doctrine. And I believe that's the spirit of the recent 
initiative in the seminary and institute programs called Doctrinal Mastery. There are specific lessons and scripture references and doctrines that are directly taught and focused on with the students. How can we expect to teach something that isn't there in our minds and hearts in the first place? I remember hearing a mission president plead with us as teachers to help the youth to understand the basic doctrines of the gospel, that far too many of his missionaries didn't know the fundamentals. You have to have something first before you can give it to somebody else. And one of the best ways that you can obtain the word and know of a surety is to do what's suggested in verse 22, our next one. But now hold your peace, study my word, which hath gone forth among the children of men, and also study my word which shall come forth among the children of men, or that which is now translating. Yea, until you have obtained all which I shall grant unto the children of men in this generation, and then shall all things be added thereto. The answer there is F. Study the Bible as well as the Book of Mormon. The words that have already gone forth, that would be the Bible. And the words that shall come forth or that are being translated would be the Book of Mormon and then other Latter-day Scripture. I think it's important for the prospective missionary to know that they should be well-versed in all of the standard works, not just the Book of Mormon. They need to study and know the Bible and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. And hopefully, come follow me and seminary can help with all of that. But the scriptures are the best preparation manual that any missionary could ever read. All right, our last one, verse 23. Behold, thou art Hiram, my son. Seek the kingdom of God and all things shall be added according to that which is just. And the match, I would say D, make spiritual things a priority. The prospective missionary should put first things first, godly things first. Many wish to seek their own kingdoms before they start working on God's. The prepared missionary will have made the things of the Spirit a priority in their lives. They don't focus on sports and schoolwork and social life at the expense of their spiritual education and edification. They've made time for church and youth activities, scripture study, personal prayer, religious education. They've sought God's kingdom instead of trying to establish their own. Well, all of this counsel is not without promise, and there are a number of them that are expressed in this section, but I'd like to just focus on one. One of the greatest promises of missionary work is found right here in this section. It's something that every faithful missionary desires. It's a gift, a spiritual skill that makes all the difference in the world for a preacher of the gospel. And it's somewhere on page 23. Can you find it? It's in verse 21. So, Seek not to declare my word, but first seek to obtain my word. And then, here's the gift, shall your tongue be loosed. Then if you desire, you shall have my spirit and my word. Yea, the power of God unto the convincing of men. Well, what more could a missionary want? 
to have the ability to speak in a way that convinces people to believe in Christ, to repent, and to seek the kingdom of God. That's the blessing that I want most as a teacher. I want the power of convincing. And the only way that we can get that power is through his spirit and his word. If I had to emphasize any of the counsels that we discussed in the matching activity, it would be those two. Get the spirit and get his word. Do those two things and you will have great potential to become an influential instrument in the hands of God. So what's the great truth of section 11? Those who obtain the Spirit and the Word will have greater power to convince others of the truth. Some questions you could ask. Which of these counsels do you feel have helped you to be a better missionary? Which of these counsels do you need most to apply? And what's your plan for following that counsel? Well, I hope you enjoyed our little MTC experience here. Whether you're a teenager preparing for serving a full-time mission or a lifelong member of the church who has a desire to better stand as a witness at all times, in all things, and in all places. Section 11 can help you. Prepare yourself. Get the Spirit and get the Word. Then get out there and start convincing and teaching with power. And Ezra Taft Benson said the following, We love all our missionaries who are serving the Lord full-time in the mission field, but there is a difference in missionaries. Some are better prepared to serve the Lord the first month in the mission field than some who are returning home after 24 months. We want missionaries entering the mission field who can enter the mission field on the run, who have the faith born of personal righteousness and clean living, that they can have a great and productive mission. Well, may you and I be on-the-run missionaries, Hiram's, disciples of Christ who have great desires to be a part of God's work and are willing to do all the Lord asks of us to be prepared instruments in his hands. Thank you for joining me today. I always love having this opportunity to teach you each week. If you're interested in the slide presentation that I used, or the handout, or you'd like a lesson plan that follows what we've talked about here, go to teachingwithpower.com you'll find links to all of those resources. If you found this lesson helpful, please subscribe, like, make a comment, and share it with those that you feel it could help. Thank you so much for watching. Now get out there and teach with power.